the story begins. Okay, friends. <laughs> we are on the bottom. <laughs> okay, whoever's whoever's listening and can't see it, they don't know what we're laughing at, but they're missing out for not being here in person. Um, we're on the bottom of page eight, continuing the blessings of the Torah, the third blessing. Let's read the blessing together in English, and we have some insight and perspective to share, and, and really meditation to offer, because that's really what these blessings, all of these blessings in the Siddur are offering us perspective. That's why we're davening, we're saying the same thing every day, day in and day out. We're trying to develop a mindset. And by learning the inner dimension of what these prayers mean, it gives more meaning to the mindset that we're hoping to develop. So let's take a look at the prayer. Second to last paragraph, bottom of page eight. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all the nations and given us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, who gives the Torah. This blessing is going to be familiar not only from the morning davening, but before one receives an aliyah. This blessing is also recited. So... God has chosen us from among all the other nations. We're often referred to as the chosen people. That's how the Torah refers to us. And that's how this blessing refers to us. We praise God for giving, giving us the Torah and choosing us from all other nations, right? There's the famous anecdote that the Talmud relays. Let me know if you're familiar with this one. God wanted to offer the Torah to the Jewish people and said, wait a minute, if I'm going to offer it to the Jewish people, I'm not going to offer it to other people. That's not, it's not very PC. So he went around from nation to nation. Do you want the Torah? They said, what's in it? It says, don't murder. No, thank you. <laughs> We're not looking for that kind of restriction. Next nation, do you want the Torah? What's that? What is in it? Don't steal. No, thank you. We're good. Right? It went to all the other nations. Nobody wanted it. Went to the Jewish people. Do you want the Torah? They said, um, what does it cost? We'll take two. No, I'm kidding. The, Jew <laughs> the Jewish people said, nah, seven Ishmael will take it. They didn't even ask what's in it. They wanted it so badly. From then on, we train our children before accepting a contract. You read it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> know what you're getting into. Um, but, but there's a backstory here. What does it mean to be the chosen people? And here's what it means in a nutshell. And we'll, we'll unpack this. Slowly. We are the chosen people, not the choosing people. I'm going to say that again because we need this to sink in. This is so important. This is fundamental to Judaism, and you'll soon see why. We are the chosen people, not the choosing people. Which means Judaism is valuable because we were chosen to participate in Jewish practice. It's not valuable because we value it. It's inherently valuable. So when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai several portions ago, the Jewish people willingly accepted the Torah. They said, God, we want this. Fast forward five verses. I think it was five. Fast forward several verses later in that same portion. God picks the, God says, it says the Jewish people are standing under the mountain. The Talmud explains why are they under the mountain? God held the mountain over their head and coerced them into accepting the Torah. And the question amongst commentaries is why did God coerce them to accept the Torah? 
They just said they wanted it. Right? You with me? They just said they wanted the Torah. Why is God coercing them? And the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Yudalawi of Prague, explains the value of Torah is not the fact that they wanted it. It has an inherent value, whether they want it or not. Our and, and that's what it means to be chosen, not to just be choosing. God chose us, so there's an inherent value in our observance. Hopefully, we can appreciate it as well. So take a look at the patriarch, the father of the Jewish people. Take a look at Abraham. Abraham discovered God at age. Anybody know? Anybody remember? What age did Abraham discover God? Was it um, in his 90s? 77. So he got, he got the bris in his 90s. It, it was younger than 77. So there's actually a debate. Some say it was age three. It's not really a debate. They're coming from different perspectives. You'll soon see. Some say it was age three. Some say it was age 40. Maimonides maintains it was age 40. And the easy way to reconcile that is he started exploring at age three and figured it out at age 40. Either way, he was the first person in history, in the universe, to figure out God on his own. And he sacrificed himself for this. God gave Abraham 10 various tests. One of the most famous ones was, you know, he was, he was fighting pagans. And the king of where he lived was Nimrod. Nimrod was a diehard pagan and none of this monotheist stuff. So he ordered Abraham to be thrown into a fiery furnace if he doesn't accept God. Are you familiar with this story? Is that the same Nimrod? Well, sometimes he insults me. You say, oh, what a Nimrod. Is that? If, same as what? You never heard that expression? Is that a phrase? Yeah. No way. That's so funny. <laughs> Nimrod is a popular name in Israel now. <laughs> I guess for, for people who are not familiar with the Bible, they like, to, they like the name. <laughs> Those who are or more how familiar we use with the expression the Bible, here. Yeah. Or not familiar with the expression, right? Those who, those who are in the know don't, don't usually name their kids Nimrod. <laughs> Anyways, um, Nimrod has him tied up, thrown into the furnace. And Abraham just walks out of the furnace as if nothing happened. A miracle happened. He believed in God. He stood for his faith. He was willing to fight for his faith. And he was spared. And that was only one of the 10 tests. Abraham had 10 various tests. Now, fast forward to the portion of Lech Lecha. Right? God tells Abraham, Abraham, you're doing pretty good. Lech Lecha, go forth. I'm going to take you to the land of Israel. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to make you a patriarch of an incredible nation. You are the father of the Jewish people. And this all seems, you know, this whole story of Nimrod jumping into the fire and, and Abraham's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Heroism for monotheism. A lot of rhymes today. His heroism. How about fervor? His fervor, his dedication. So God chose him. But none of this is written in the Torah. What we do know in the Torah is God chose Abraham 
go forth. You're going to go to Israel, and I'm going to make you the father of the Jewish people. The why behind it, the stories behind it, the, the sacrifice, his discovery of God, his sacrifice for God, the heroism of jumping in the fire and all the other tests, none of those are mentioned in the Torah itself. The Midrash fills us in. So when you open the book of the Torah and you open to Parashas Lech Lecha and God tells Abraham, go forth, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Without knowing that backstory, you have no idea why. So commentaries say, wait a minute, why is the Torah rewarding Abraham without explaining why? And the answer is, what made Abraham valuable, this is true with all the Jewish people, children of Abraham, what made Abraham valuable was not anything that he did, even though he did some valuable things. It was the mere fact that he was chosen. Which means you're not Jewish because you're smart. <laughs> you're Jewish because you're Jewish. You're not Jewish because you study the Torah. And therefore, you're going to be Jewish. You are Jewish no matter what. You're therefore going to study the Torah. And that's why it doesn't say what Abraham did to, to, to earn any of this, because it's not really relevant to Jewish identity, to Abrahamic identity. Let's contrast this to Adam, the first person who was given commandments from God, but only after describing the great qualities of Adam, created in the image of right, all the various great qualities that Adam had, afterwards he was commanded. His greatness of being commanded was only in the fact that he had great qualities. Same with Noah. Noah was righteous. Noah walked with God. Only afterward did, it command no did, did God command Noah. Abraham, it doesn't mention his qualities. doesn't mention how great he is. God just right away commands him to engage, to follow, to listen. Because a Jew is not Jewish because of any quality, any particular quality they have. It's just who they are. And by the way, just parenthetically, this is an incredible paradigm. This is, the, this is the paradigm with God, with which God sees us. And this is an incredible paradigm to see our own children. Your child is valuable because they are your child. No other reason. Not because of the qualities. Look past the qualities. They're not just your child. We can't be proud of our children just because they're smart. On the same token, we can't be ashamed of them if we don't find them smart enough. I'm using smart as an example of any quality. They are our child. There's an inherent value that we have of them just as God, as his children, inherently values us. And that's the difference between choosing and being chosen. So go, go back to the, to the prayer over here on the bottom of the page. As we're reading this, I want you to think about this. Plug in this meditation when we... So we'll read the words, but we're going to be thinking about what it really means to be chosen. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all other nations. Think about that. We are not the choosing people. We are the chosen people. Why did God choose us? Well, as soon as you attach a why to it, it kills it. It's no longer pure. Right? If I were to ask you why you love your child, 
and you answer the question, uh oh. <laughs> no, you shouldn't be able to answer that question. Now, very often we are able to answer that question, and, and that's fine. We have ups and downs with it, but if we're but if we're um, in, in, in the right frame of mind, ideally, we shouldn't be able to answer the question. It's my child. What do you mean? If I love my child because they're smart, when they disappoint me, they're no longer my child. Right? But if they're my child because they're my child, if I'm Jewish because God chose me, not because I'm an observant or because I'm adherent, or because I'm culturally um, aware or in the know. All of those are just a product being chosen. I'll give you another example. Example number two. Um, the same exact, exact uh, theme in the, in, in the Torah. <sighs> Abraham was given a... A circumcision by himself, mind you, at age 99. And he was instructed to circumcise his entire household. So he circumcises, he has two children at this point. He has Yishmael, our the, the father patriarch of our cousins, the Arab world, and Isaac, patriarch of the Jewish people. Isaac is at the time eight days old. So if you were to ask him, okay, whatever, he doesn't really remember. Ishmael was 13 years old. To this day, I believe Arabs and I guess Muslims, I, don't, I think, get circumcised at 13. Is it true? There's no fact checkers listening to us. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> and there's no live fact checkers. Um, is there? Um, anybody listening to the recording can't correct me, so I could just say whatever. I no, okay. By the way, it's, it's interesting. Many commentaries, biblical scholars maintain that it's a biblical commandment for Arabs, for, for children, uh, descendants of Ishmael, to get a circumcision, just as like it is a Jew. Because of this biblical uh, um, occurrence, sequence, which means theoretically, gen a, a, you know, a Jew has to be circumcised by a Jew because somebody... If somebody has the mitzvah of circumcision, now they can circumcise someone. So theoretically, Jew might be able to get circumcised by an Arab. Practically, we don't actually do that. Anyways, that's a side topic. Where was I? Okay. Isaac gets this bris at eight days old. Ishmael gets this bris at 13 years old. And the Midrash tells us of a dialogue that Isaac and Ishmael had when they were older. Debate. Who's more... Uh, who's more um, cherished? Who is more, quote-unquote, valuable bris? Ishmael says, you were eight days old. You didn't have a choice. I had a choice at age 13, and I decided to do it. I could have said no. I believed in it. You didn't believe in it. You've been, you were indoctrinated. And Isaac's response was, you chose, I was chosen. You see the difference? Who carried on the Jewish lineage? 
Isaac, not Ishmael. What does it mean to be a Jew? It means I was chosen. Again, this isn't, God forbid, uh, um, putting down the value, the inherent value and sacredness that every human being has. But in terms of Jewish identity, Jewish identity means I was chosen. I didn't choose. Which means Torah, mitzvahs, all these have an inherent value. Beyond what we can measure on our own selves, on our, on our own. Question. Um, so some people like people who grew up in the Soviet Union and couldn't get circumcised at, at eight days. And then eventually they came to America and very painfully so, maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, they, they went through a circumcision. In that case, they, they chose to endure that pain. But yeah, it's true. It's true. They, they didn't chose the need to endure that pain. They didn't. You know, they needed it because they were chosen. But then practically, they the chose same, to execute it. They could have said no. But couldn't you say the same thing then about um, ish, ish? You could say the same. And look, you could say the same thing with with everybody. A parent could choose that their theoretically could choose that their kid doesn't. But the 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 point is in terms of of what creates Jewish identity is. The fact that one is chosen, one is chosen to, uh, to, one is chosen to need this rather than choosing to need it. Now, technically, you're right. Ishmael could have said, Ishmael still needed it. He was still commanded to do it. So it's that is true. Um, at the time, prior to um, receiving the Torah, Jewish lineage did work a little bit differently. It was a little bit more observance based. So the fact that one was chosen to do an observance, you know, that didn't did make a difference. Take a look at the at the prayer. Take a look at line number two. Who has chosen us from all other nations? I'm going to read the next couple of words and has given us his Torah. Because he chose us, he therefore gave us his Torah. In other words, what makes us Jewish is not our study of the Torah. What makes us Jewish is the fact that we're Jewish and therefore we study Torah. And therefore, right after it says he's chosen us from among all the other nations, he says, and has given us his Torah as a result of that. We're one to assert that it were the latter, that, that it were the former, sorry. In other words, you're Jewish because you study Torah. Then today I studied Torah, or at this era in my life, I'm studying Torah, I'm Jewish. And if I stop studying Torah or adhering to Torah, I'm no longer Jewish. But we know that's not the case. We know that Judaism, there's three things you can't run away from. You know, they say, you know, the IRS. Chabad's emailing list, <laughs> Jewish identity. <laughs> can't run away from any of those. <laughs> you can't run away from, from Jewish identity because Jewish identity is not a product of observance. 
it's the other way around. You'll observe because you're Jewish. And if we don't observe, you're still Jewish. It just makes life more complicated. <laughs> we create more tension and more distance between us and our souls because we're not observing. Fine, we're going to create more tension and a lot of more problems, whatever. The soul doesn't go anywhere. We're still Jewish. God has chosen us from all other nations and therefore has given us the Torah. The Torah is not what makes us Jewish. We are Jewish and therefore we have the Torah. Therefore we have mitzvahs. And ju just to indicate this, that where we see this in the Bible back in the Torah, when the Jews were camping at Mount Sinai to receive the Torah, it says, I'll quote the Hebrew verse and then the English, I'll, I'll translate it. And he, the nation of Israel, camped across from the mountain. The Talmud asks, he camped across from the across the mountain? Three million Jewish people, you're calling him at a he? It's a they. The Talmud says, yeah, but they were all one. Like one person with one heart. So it referred to the entire three million Jewish people as a he. So there was a certain unity at the event of Mount Sinai. But what's fascinating is that this unity was moments prior or, or the, the day before the giving of the Torah. We were united as people, therefore we got the Torah. Wasn't the, you know, sometimes we say Torah is what unites us, and that is true on, on some levels, on some level. But what we see is our unity as Jewish people, our Jewish identity, isn't because of the Torah. But we study Torah because we're Jewish, because we are one people. What unites us truly is the soul. Let, let's go through this meditation because I think this is so important to think about this as we recite the blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from, all, from among all other nations, which means what makes me valuable as a Jew is not my decision to adhere, but the fact that God wants me to adhere, there's an inherent value. A child is not your child because the child is interested in being your child. <laughs> the child doesn't get a choice. The child is your child. And you're going to love that child no matter what. And it's the same with Jewish identity. We are part of God's nation, not because we decided to be. It's just who we are. And therefore, he has given us his Torah. We are practicing and adhere to his Torah because we're Jewish, because we're his child. That's not what makes us Jewish. We do that because we're Jewish. And this is why, by the way, Jews from all levels of, uh, of involvement are still always going to connect on some level. Because the connection is not an intellectual connection. It's deeper than that. I'll prove it to you. Why the heck would somebody want to put on tefillin with some random bearded rabbi <laughs> approaching him when they have no involvement? It was a Jewish guy working at Enterprise. He doesn't work there anymore in Pleasanton. So I showed up 
unexpected. The guy was raised uh, in a Christian home. Didn't celebrate anything about Judaism. He knew nothing about Judaism. He didn't even understand that he was Jewish because his mother was Jewish and his father wasn't, and he wasn't educated knowing that he was Jewish. I walk in there and I introduce myself. I said, would you like to put on tefillin? He says, I don't know what that is. I said, have you had a bar mitzvah? He says, no, we had a Christmas tree. What bar mitzvah? I said, come, we're going to put on tefillin. And I explained briefly what the tefillin was. And he does it. He's in the middle of his work day. He's literally in the middle of his work. He's on shift. And he's willing for some bearded man to wrap, to strap him up with these random lever straps, he has no understanding of what's going on here. It's not like he understood that this is a biblical commandment, this is what the Bible says, and this is the meaning, this is the significance of the connection. But he was happy to do it. Why? Because what made him Jewish isn't his understanding of Judaism. It's something deeper than that. It's the fact that God chose him to be Jewish. Even though he wasn't given the opportunity to intellectually understand it yet. There's a Another gentleman I meet with who considers himself to be an atheist. And then after our meeting, we say, let's put on tefillin. Sure. Let's pray. Sure. <laughs> Why? Because you have an ashama. Okay, we can philosophically debate whether God exists or not. Fine. In, in, in the mind, it doesn't exist. The mind can't go there. The mind isn't willing to admit. The mind isn't willing to be open to that yet. But the soul is open. If Judaism was defined by how much Torah one knows, how Jewish are you? Right? It doesn't, how Jewish, the concept doesn't even exist. Any questions, comments, thoughts before we go further? Reflections, controversy, no controversy. Okay, let's take a look at the, the last portion of the lesson because this is important. Blessed are you, Lord, who gives the Torah. Commentaries point out it doesn't say he gave us the Torah. It says he gives us the Torah in the present tense. And there's a couple of explanations as to what this means. One way of explaining this is, you know, flip, flip to the Shema for a second, because I think this will give context. It's on page... Um, 42. 42, okay, thank you. The second paragraph of the Shema. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command to you today shall be upon your heart. And commentaries ask, God is commanding us this today? This wasn't today. This was 3,000 years ago. Okay, I guess when it was said it was today. <laughs> but was it really today? And the commentators point out, well, in our experience, it does have to be today. Experientially, we have to feel like God just gave it to us today. And the truth is, what we're saying back in this blessing, back on page 8, God gives us the Torah. We see it as God just gave it to us today. 
it's fresh. Sometimes, you know, we were, we were talking about the putting on tefillin ceremony. When a bar mitzvah boy puts on tefillin for the first time, it's fresh, it's exciting. And he's been anticipating it for years. You're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. Everybody's putting on tefillin and you get to just watch. You finally get to participate and put on the tefillin for years and years. He's anticipating this. And finally, you get to do it. So your first time putting on tefillin, what is that like? It's, it's exciting. But what's it like when you're 15? <laughs> what's it like when you're 20? You've been doing it for so long. It's second nature, which is beautiful. And that's why we have to have kavana. We have to remind ourselves, keep it fresh, keep it new, right? The Torah is something we see as if God gave it to us today. He gives us the Torah. It's not that he gave us the Torah. If we see Judaism as a relationship with God, which is how we saw the event at Mount Sinai, right? God was, the, the, the whole Sinaitic event was like the wedding ceremony, right? So you don't say you married your spouse. You say you are married to your spouse. See the difference? It's not that you married your spouse years ago. Okay, now don't talk because we don't want to ruin anything, right? <laughs> you always have to work on the relationship. And it's the same thing with God. It's not that we married God. We are married to God. He's constantly giving us the Torah. We're constantly given opportunities to refresh the relationship. He's constantly communicating with us via Torah, allowing us to um, participate and experience this relationship. It's the present tense. Who gives us the Torah? He's giving it us now. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that the Torah itself is relevant because he just gave it to us. He literally just gave it to us. It's not archaic. And the reason why it's not archaic is because it's not man-made. The moment we treat Torah as man-made, it's outdated before it started. I was talking with somebody who said, I don't understand this whole kosher thing. We, all, we now know what's healthy and what's not healthy with science. Why do we need kosher? So what does healthy have to do with anything? <laughs> if Torah was man-made by a scientist from 3,000 years ago, then you, that's a good question. It's outdated. Right? Why it's, but if it, this is what God wants. It's nothing to do with health. Um, if this is what God wants then it's relevant thousands of years ago as much as it is, and, and it's equally relevant now. It, it, every, you know, look, there's a lot of adherences in Torah, observances in Torah that we can't do now, given the diaspora and given the circumstances, but everything is relevant on some level. There's always a relevant message. The message is always relevant. Many of the laws are always relevant. And I'll just conclude with a... Um, the story that I've heard. There was a rabbi, uh, rabbi in Long Beach, California, who had a constituent who was a scientist, doctor, considered himself to be an atheist, 
And he said, Rabbi, you're so archaic. You're reading all these old books from thousands of years ago. My books are cutting edge. So the rabbi said, let's go into a time machine together and fast forward 10 years. You take with you your books. I'll take with me my books. We go into the time machine together. We fast forward 10 years. It's now the year, whatever it was at back then. What relevance do your books have? Irrelevant. What relevance do my books have? The same exact relevance. The relevance didn't change. It's always relevant. Okay, you didn't see how it was relevant. So come, sit, learn, and you'll see how it's relevant. But what we see here from this line here, God gives us the Torah. It's not something that he gave us. It's something that he gives us. What we see is that the Torah, the message of the Torah is relevant. The relationship with God is relevant. It's not outdated. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.